Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your love and opportunity to study and the beauty of your character and how you work to always heal, save, and restore. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us as we study uh, another hour with you this morning. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So. Uh, we're doing lesson uh, number five in the quarterly Daniel, and the title this week is From Pride to Humility. From Pride to Humility. And the second paragraph says, uh, Pride lead, leads to Lucifer's fall, so he now instills pride in men, thus leading them to be against God and so to go down the path toward destruction. We are all fallen human beings dependent upon God for our very existence. Any gifts we have, Anything that we accomplish with those gifts come only from God. I thought about that. First off, we fallen beings are absolutely dependent upon God for our existence. There is no question about it. But is it just the fallen beings that are dependent on God for their existence? Or how about the unfallen beings? Are they also dependent on God for their existence? Yes, Yes, they are. Um, But we fallen beings need reminding, and I don't believe the unfallen beings need reminding of their dependence upon God. Why would we need reminding? Because we have our minds clouded to the actual reality of how the rest of the universe operates in a dependent love relationship with God. Many don't even believe in God anymore, don't know about God, and and or have such distorted views about God that they don't even realize that he is that their life is dependent on God. Their minds are clouded. They don't understand truth. I don't think that's true for the rest of the unfallen universe. Or pride, selfishness, and survival drives cause them to think that it's all on them to sustain themselves. But what do you think about this sentence? Any gifts we have, anything, anything that we accomplish with those gifts come only from God. How is this true and how could this statement be misunderstood? Did God give Samson strength? Special, supernatural strength. Then, yes, and the answer is yes. Yes, we all agree, yes. Then, was everything Samson accomplished with that strength from God? What's wrong with you people? (laughs) We just read that any gifts and anything we accomplish with those gifts are from God. Hmm. Hmm. Well, if we mean everything Samson did was made possible only because God gave him the strength, and without the strength from God he couldn't have done anything, then in a certain sense, okay, it was made possible through God's empowerments of him. But that is not the same thing as to say that anything he did was actually God acting or from God or God's will. Has God given human beings the gift, you can call it a gift, you can call it an ability, of procreation, creating children in our own image? Has he given us that ability, that gift? Does that mean when a man rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, that it was an act of God? God was accomplishing that. She should turn to God and say, thank you for accomplishing this wonderful work in me. Many people believe it. Yes, many people do believe it. I hope my presentation is so effective that you realize that's ridiculous. It is not how God works. My point is that all life and all talent and all gifts and all abilities are given or come from the source of all life and all goodness, God, 
who is the source of all creation. But that doesn't mean all actions accomplished with those abilities or gifts or talents are acts of God. Can't all the children, though, if they're allowed to live, be instruments for God? Sure. Absolutely. We tend to think of them as being... um, defective in some way, but they're not. Once they are born, God can use them just like anybody else. So you opened up another question, which was not the question. And you also jumped to a conclusion that the pregnancy is a child. Okay. (laughs) She jumped to the conclusion that the pregnancy is a child. You want to go down this road? Well, has anybody heard of a molar pregnancy? Of course. A molar pregnancy? Yes. How rare are they? But but that's a pregnancy, and it's not a child. It's an assumption that every pregnancy is a child. If you don't know what a molar pregnancy is, before you email me about it, just look it up on the internet. You'll be educated. Okay. Okay. I'm just. I'm just. It's an assumption. Okay, and I, I, part of what I do is challenge assumptions. You're always thinking outside the box is what it is. Yes. Who wants their brain tied inside a box? <laughs> <laughs> we, we want to free your brain. So the point being here, the point being here is that God gives abilities, gifts, talents, but under the laws upon which he governs the universe, one of those being the law of liberty. And so when we receive a gift from God, we have the liberty to exercise that ability or gift in harmony with God's wills, plans, purposes, or out of harmony with God's wills, plans, and purposes. That is not an act or a will or a purpose of God that somebody should abuse another person with the ability that God has given them. So all things are not accomplished by God, or even for God, but are only accomplished because God does give life and give abilities. And that's an important distinction to make, because many people don't, and then thus they draw all kinds of false conclusions, like God wanted me to be molested because God gave this man the ability to molest me, so it must have been God's will for me to be molested. You see how corrupt and corrosive and false that idea is? Consider giving your child the gift of a new car. And they are of age. They have a driver's license. So it's proper and reasonable to give the gift. They only have the car because of you. They could never afford it on their own. You've gifted it to them. And then they use their car to smuggle drugs across the border. Are they accomplishing this because of you? You see, the, you see the point. Okay? God gifts us, but it's how we use the gifts is on us, not on, on the Lord. First sentence in the last paragraph states that it took a long time for Nebuchadnezzar to recognize the importance of humility. Well, I want to just briefly unpack what is healthy, godly humility and what is unhealthy humility. Healthy humility is the recognition of truth the truth of one's own finiteness, one's own infection with fear and selfishness, you might call that sinfulness, one's own limited limited abilities or limitations, one's vulnerabilities, one's own weaknesses, yet under the umbrella of one's calling and purposes and relationship with God, and in that relationship, there is confidence and strength 
in what God can accomplish through a surrendered life. You have no confidence or praise for self, but you have the steadfastness of purpose and confidence in carrying out the Lord's purposes. That's a healthy humility. Unhealthy humility. Feelings of worthlessness, uselessness, valuelessness. I'm nothing but a worm. No good and no value for anything. Humility that leads to helplessness. I'm so horrible, so sinful, so useless, so corrupt, so decayed. I'm no good for anything. This is not healthy humility. Humility that leads to dependency on other people such that one doesn't act for self. One doesn't exercise self-control or self-governance. One is so humble, I'm just a, a poor, corrupt sinner. I don't know what to do. I'll let my pastor, my priest, my pope, my teacher, my doctor, whomever, tell me. And I'll just follow their lead. This is not healthy humility. Humility that makes humility their point of pride. Acting in ways that draw attention to how humble they are. I'm really humble and I'm proud of it. That's always a good joke, isn't it? But you've seen it. Oh, I remember in, uh, at, when I was a student at one of the, the local college here, there was a young lady, and some of you, I guess some of you, some of you remember that were there with me, and she dressed like she was in the 19th century. Clothing from the 19th century. Uh, I don't think she ever washed her hair, maybe, maybe every spring once. And it was straight, and there was no makeup, and she would walk around, you know, carrying a Bible in one hand, almost in the uh, position of, of repose, if you know what the position of repose is. It's where they put somebody in a casket, you know, the position of repose. Okay? And she walked around campus like this, never cracked a smile. And she was very pious in her humility. And no one ever seemed to notice. No, everyone noticed her. She was like a neon sign. This humility was designed to draw attention to self. Humility that resides in the heart. Here's another unhealthy humility. Humility that resides in the heart as humiliation. Humiliation is not humility. Sunday's lesson. Yes. The old quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Yeah, that's good. The lesson on Sunday's lesson focuses our attention on Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the great tree that's cut down for seven years and the king's pride and then seven years of insanity and living like an animal and then being restored to sanity and governance uh, of his kingdom. What do we learn from this story? Lots of, lots of insights in this story, many insights. Who did Nebuchadnezzar see in his dream? In his dream he saw... Okay. Coming down from heaven... What did he see? Who did he see? The holy watchers come down from heaven. This is where we got the name of our uh, title to our book, the, uh, the um, Journal of the Watcher. God has his watchers, his holy watchers watching. And, in, uh, and he sees these holy watchers. And who are the watchers? We're not exactly told. But they're holy and they're watching. So they, they don't tell you the species of being. They tell you the function 
of being. That these beings uh, and the status, they're holy, they're righteous, they're not sinful, they're not in rebellion, they're loyal to God, number one. And number two, they watch, they observe. That's what they're doing. Are they seraphim? Are they cherubim? Are they some other heavenly species? We don't know. We don't know the species. But we know that they are watching events transpiring on earth. Why? Why are they watching? Why are they watching? What interest would you think they might have? What is the, what is the, the uh, story that they're watching? What's the cinematographic theme that they're watching? The great controversy that began where? In their home. They're watching the unfolding conflict that began in their home. That's what they're watching. So are they like a war correspondent? Are they like a war correspondent? What do you think? A war correspondent is somebody who's at war. They don't participate in the war. They just record and observe and recount and report back on what they're seeing. Are they a war correspondent? I think they could be. Why would holy, sinless beings be watching? Is it because they don't know everything already? Is it because they need to learn something? Is it because there's some information that they're unaware of? Yes, that's right. Do they know? Are, are they God? Do they know all things? Has Satan lied to them? And even though they stayed loyal, did that mean all the lies told had answers that settled the questions for them? Or did they have questions left unanswered that they were trying to discern? Are we told that some of them long to look into and see what's going on? Here? So yes, uh, the, this is uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, I believe. It says, uh, even the angels long to look into these things. Talking about the plan of salvation, I won't read the whole thing. Talking about the prophets, the Old Testament, the history of what's uh, described in the Bible. The angels long to look into these things. Uh, When you, what do we learn? They're not only are they longing to look into these things, they're looking for evidences, but if you accept the story here in Daniel, these watchers are not just watching at this point, they start participating. And they participate by suggesting to God an action. They suggest to God an intervention of seven years of insanity. Where do you learn that this idea of let's give him seven years of insanity came from the watchers? You know that, right? You read the story. It didn't come from God. It came from the watchers. Read the story. If, if, you, if you believe the Bible account. Well, what law lens are you viewing it through? Are they looking at this arrogant king and saying, ah, oh, he deserves some punishment, his, he's prideful, he's arrogant, he doesn't give glory to God, he's had all these evidences already, he's had the fiery furnace, and he's still taking credit to himself, let's punish this dude. Is that what's going on here? Or are these heavenly beings trying to comprehend and understand the principles at war? What God is trying to achieve, and what's he trying to achieve? Salvation, which means what? What's he trying to achieve in the hearts of people? Healing, Healing which means functionally what? Restoration, restoration to their original. Restoration to design, which means they have to have what? 
Trust. Trust. They have to have trust. He's trying to win us to trust. They have to have will for participation in the process because God wants our love, our loyalty, our trust, our devotion. You can't get that by might and power. You have to win that. And so, so these intelligent beings are looking in. How does God's methods of truth, love, liberty, how do they actually work in a sentient being? This guy is prideful. He's arrogant. Is there any intervention we can do to cause him to reflect, to reconsider, to reevaluate? I think they are being involved in the process because their minds need to understand these, these eternal truths as well. It says in Hebrews 1, 14 through 2, verse 1, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? God's heavenly beings are part of the team. They're part of the team working for our salvation. One of the founders of the SDA Church wrote in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 197, the following. If, you're, if you are in communion with Christ, will you, place, you will place his estimate upon every human being. You will feel for others the same deep love that Christ has felt for you. Then you will be able to win, not drive. To attract, not repulse, those for whom he died. In this work, all the angels of heaven are ready to cooperate. All the resources of heaven are at the command of those who are seeking to save the lost. Angels will help you to reach the most careless and the most hardened. And when one, one is brought back to God, all heaven is made glad. Seraphs and cherubim touch their golden harps and sing praises to God and the Lamb for their mercy and loving kindness toward the children of men. Do you have that perspective that you have heavenly beings, heavenly watchers, here to help you? Not just guard you. Intervene, suggest interventions, therapies, actions that could bless you, help you, cause you to grow, reconsider. And, and they're available for you to cooperate with. Lord, I love people. I want to I reach people. I will tell you, we ha- are doing the power of love next week, creating equipping, equipping, equipping course. Pray for us. We've been praying because we really believe Satan doesn't want this to go forward. And so we're praying God will send his angels to just hold back any disrupting forces that could throw it off, throw off the event. But not just for the event's sake, for the 400 people in attendance. We are recording the event to create enduring materials to share with the tens of thousands down the road. Pray that God's angels will be involved. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, Daniel not only interprets the dream, but also points Nebuchadnezzar to a way out of his situation. Quote from Daniel 4.27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. What was Daniel advising the king to do? To repent. Why? What was the reason, Daniel? There's a reason Daniel gave this advice. Because he was so full of pride. Okay, it was, it was, it was, yes, he was full of pride. But it says in the text, perhaps. 
a lengthening of your... In other words, is he advising this course of action? Because if you take this course of action, then this dream may not happen. This prophecy may not occur. You see what I'm saying here? If you repent, you may not go into the seven years of insanity or whatever that was being prophesied in that dream. Does this mean that not all of the prophecy in the book of Daniel is apocalyptic? Remember, apocalyptic prophecy is prophecy that God brings about and it doesn't depend on human choice. Did this prophecy depend upon the arrogance and pride of Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. Whether we see it as punishment, like the illegal, God's punishing, or we see it as therapeutic intervention, design law to bring healing, is either, either action necessary if Nebuchadnezzar repents. So this is, to me, a conditional prophecy. It's conditional upon Nebuchadnezzar remaining arrogant and prideful, not repenting. It's just like Noah's prophecy with the flood. It's conditional. Or Nebuchadnezzar. Or Nebuchadnezzar, right. Uh, A second paragraph, it says, Nebuchadnezzar performs a massive work of rebuilding in Babylon. The gardens, a system of canals, hundreds of temples, and other buildings, projects turn the city into one of the wonders of the ancient world. But such splendor and beauty, at least in part, is accomplished through exploitation of slave manpower and neglect of the poor. Furthermore, the wealth of the empire is used to gratify the pleasures of the king and his entourage. Thus, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar not only prevents him from acknowledging God, but as a consequence also makes him oblivious to the hardships of those in need. Given the special care that God shows for the poor, it is not surprising that from the other possible sins that Daniel could have highlighted before the king, he singles out the sin of neglecting of the poor. That's profound. What method of ruling others is employed by Nebuchadnezzar. Force. Force. Power over. Coercion. Enslavement. Exploitation. And I want you to notice the contrast of the government of Satan operate on the methods of coercion and force. And deception. And deception. Satan, it says in, in Isaiah, wanted to ascend to the Most High and have all of the others be ruled by him. In other words, the systems of Satan are systems in which you have a ruling elite exploit and abuse the masses to sustain the privilege of the elite. And so Satan's method in Isaiah, as he ascends, he wants to ascend on high, and he wants to rule over. Jesus, who did not think, notice the contrast, Jesus did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the form of the servant for what purpose? Not to rule over, but to of himself sacrifice himself to build and uplift others. Understand, Persian government did not sacrifice the royalty to uplift up the, 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 the masses. The contrast here, I want you to see. Ruling over, which requires a mass of population that are disenfranchised and disadvantaged, enslaved, abused, in poverty in order to sustain the ruling elite. Now, let's look at history. And God is just the opposite. God gives of himself to uplift the disenfranchised, the hurt, the enslaved, to free, to restore. That's God says. Now, look, look at history. Pharaohs of Egypt. How were they sustained in their power? Chief Emperors of China. The shoguns and emperors of Japan, kings of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, kings and popes of the nation-states of Europe. How were all of these governments sustained? Which model? They're all sustained by a few ruling aristocratic elites exploiting the masses to sustain their power. 
That's how they operate. Yes. Is that why God didn't want Israel to have a king? Yes. Yes, because they went down that same trail. You see, it happened with Solomon. Same thing. And you see the corruption of that. And the taxes Rehoboam put on to exploit again, and it corrupted the kingdom. This is the, the methods. So this type of governing is only possible by exploiting a mass of people, which prevents the image of God being developed in the people. In other words, the elite can only stay in power if they keep the masses from developing their own God-given individuality and given potential. I propose that such, such actions, and you can agree or disagree with my proposition, such actions that destroy the image of God in people is evil. It's evil to destroy the image of God in people. That's my proposition. And governments that act in such a way to prevent individual development, advancement, growth, autonomy, reasoning, developing, and coming to the knowledge of God are evil governments. Specific methods in history used to injure the image of God and keep the masses subjugated. Here are specific actions taken by governments throughout history. Denying education to the people to keep them ignorant. Control of education, so you indoctrinate them into a certain way of thinking. Falsehoods and propaganda, such as divine rights of a fuel to rule or superstitious teachings that the, these people in certain robes control the keys to heaven and hell, and if you don't do these rituals or perform these things, then you can't go to heaven. Uh, superstitious teachings to control based on fear. Or lies that one class or group of people are subhuman or not equal to other class or group of people. Control of the media to promote false narratives and further the propaganda. Enslaving, imprisoning, and killing. Control of resources such as food, water, housing, health care. Structured impoverishments like high taxes. Laws limiting ownership to, of property to the elite such as feudal systems where the aristocracy would own the property and the people, the peasants would work and, uh, and work basically just for housing and food and any uh, profits would go to the aristocracy. Or coal and railroad barons in the early part of the, of the U.S. I don't even have to go into that history. But it was structured impoverishment. Or practices designed to keep wages low. In response to the abuses of the elite aristocracies, socialism and communism arose purporting to be interested in the welfare of the masses. But in every case in human history where these governments went into effect, in every case, it only removed one ruling class of elites and put in another ruling class of elites, and the people were significantly exploited and abused and, and dominated whether it's Soviet Union, Communist China, Nazi Germany, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, in every instance, it's just one ruling class, and the system does not change as far as the one group dominating the masses to maintain the lifestyle of the elite. Only one government in human history of the world was established with the express purpose of preventing an elite ruling class from dominating and controlling the masses with the express purpose of giving the power to the masses Revelation prophesied that this government would arise with lamb-like principles of two principles, religious and political freedom. The lamb-like beast is going to arise and give two freedoms, take power from the elites and put it into the people. The articles of a corporation were constructed to prevent, specifically, the rising up of a ruling elite. 
And that, of course, is the United States of America. Since the inception of the United States of America, other governments have in some form or fashion tried to model themselves after the U.S. But with the rise of the United States, a radical new form of government was formed, and its constitution was specifically structured to protect the individual citizenry from the powers of the ruling elite or prevent a rising up of the ruling elite. This is exactly the opposite of the principles employed in Satan's method of government, where you have domination and control of, a, of, a, of the masses by the ruling elite. Some people view the rise of the United States as the fulfillment of the lamb-like beast in Revelation 13 for these very reasons, which arises with those political and religious freedoms, but will eventually talk like a dragon and eventually take our freedoms from us and coerce us like all the others. What makes the Constitution specifically hated by those ruling elites who would like to dominate the masses is the decentralization of power into three equal branches, judiciary, legislative, and executive. The limitation on Congress to remove a president, except for specific spelled-out crimes. And why was that limitation put there? And I want you to know, many people don't know. Because the executive branches have equal power to the legislative, which is equal to the judiciary. There's not one has power over the other. In Britain, they have a parliament and they have a prime minister. But the prime minister serves at the behest of the parliament. And so the parliamentary representatives would be analogous to your congressmen. They vote, it would be like the Speaker of the House. And, they, and that person serves as long as the Congress votes him. And at any time the Congress decides to vote, that person's out. Our Constitution was established to prevent that from happening. It was supposed to be elected by the people, so the people have a direct say in the power structure, not the, not the, not the Congress. And they could only re remove him if that person was betraying his oath of office, basically. Formation of an electoral college, which again, rather than a simple majority, was to decentralize power. Separation of church and state, having seen the abuses in Europe of state churches and how the churches and the states work together to coerce conscience. Uh, we have freedoms and liberties of conscience in this country. The right of the citizenry to carry and bear arms. This was specifically put in to protect, not from the criminal around the corner, to protect you from being controlled by a ruling elite who had an army. That's what it was for. A militia that could say to the government, no. That was the reason. To, again, prevent a ruling elite from controlling the masses. The right to a free and independent press was intended to investigate and expose corruption of any elected officials that would be reported to the populace where the power lies, and the populace, with that new information, would vote them out of office. That's what was supposed to happen. But what happens when the... Uh, and I want you to understand, as you understand these principles and why they were designed to prevent a, a ruling elite and keep the power in the hands of the people... If you attack each one of these principles, then you can eventually have this lamb-like beast speak like a dragon. And when the media is no longer independent but begins acting uh, on, on uh, the agendas of other organizations, then the people don't have the information they need to make informed choices. The right uh, to privacy. No search and seizure without warrant. Again, power from the state to you. The state has to have an overriding cause to overrule your right to privacy. That's not the way it used to be. It's not the way it is in any historic aristocracy. Nebuchadnezzar didn't need a warrant to go into your home anytime he wanted. Caesar didn't need a warrant. Everything was really owned by Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar. 
the right not to self-incriminate. In the in the the aristocracies of the past and during the Inquisition, if you were asked a question and you didn't answer, you just sat me in silent. That was the same as admitting guilt. So you were guilty if you didn't answer. Now you're innocent. An educated citizenry who could read and write in order to be informed. What would happen if we stop educating our citizenry? The requirement of elections periodically and and high hurdles to make this change. You understand for the informed Christian, if you understand the concept that the Bible predicts a a ruling governance of some sort that merges uh, uh, state powers with religious powers to somehow subordinate the nation states under their control, that if you believe that one day might happen, the U.S. Constitution is the most significant legal document in the world that stops that. For now. There's no other document in the world. It's the greatest legal obstacle to that one world government is the U.S. Constitution. That's why since its inception has been under attack by forces who want to reestablish a ruling elite to dominate the nation states and force and coerce compliance. So when you understand all this and these greater controversy issues involved, you can be a watcher. You can watch, discern, observe processes, and then you can begin asking questions. What are consequences? Does the U.S. um, Constitution get protected and the liberties of conscience and the health and welfare of the most vulnerable in our society? which we want to uplift. We want to uplift the masses. We want to educate them. We want them to have the full development of the image of God within. This is the goal of a godly government, to create opportunity for growth, not to restrain or restrict it. Do we advance that when you can ask the policy questions? Well, if we put this policy in, in place, will it help people advance or will it restrict and oppress people and disadvantage them? I don't know if I should go down this trail. It might be too emotionally sensitive for some of you. Go, go, go. I, I don't want to offend anybody. My, my wife is shaking her head. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask the questions. You guys can, and I'll give you some, um, some, some things to think through. And, and please hear what I say. Don't hear what you think I say. <laughs> Speak slowly. Because a lot of times you... uh, (laughs) Because a lot of times you say something and people, I get emails, they think I said something I never said. They, they, They just react because you bring up a topic. What impact? Now, this is the question. My Remember my... I'm going to set the frame again because I went through a lot of information. It is evil to destroy the image of God in people. It is righteous to work with your resources to help restore the image of God in people. That's the premise I'm operating on. Actions and practices designed to uplift those who are less fortunate than you or I may be, to bring not just truthful concepts to bear, but opportunities for them to exercise their abilities for them to grow in advance and understand the design laws. You cannot give somebody um, uh, experience. You can give them opportunity to exercise their ability to gain experience. You can give opportun- You can't give somebody skill or strength or strength. You can give them opportunity to exercise their abilities to gain skill. 
Is everybody following me here? So healthy governments create opportunities for people to utilize their abilities to maximize. That's why our, our Declaration of Independence, we have the right to life. We have the right to freedom, liberty. You do not have the right to happiness. You have the right to the pursuit of happiness. That's the opportunity. So the healthy government creates the opportunity for you to pursue it. But you can't require, you can't make somebody else exercise their ability in healthy avenues to develop themselves. You just can't do it. And so understand that difference. Now, unhealthy governments can take away liberties, can take away opportunities, can close down choices for people. That's unhealthy. The healthy is to create opportunities for people to advance. So with that in mind, what impact does an unregulated border have on a society, particularly on the most poor and the most disenfranchised in our society. Notice I didn't say no immigration, I said unregulated, open borders. Do the wages for those with the least education, the least social connections, and the least skills rise with an unregulated border? No. With suppressing wages result in people developing and advancing or it would result in them becoming more dependent upon those with resources and power, whether it's wealthy people, corporations, or governments. Would social resources such as Medicaid, low-cost housing, mental health treatment programs, social support systems, student aid be more available or would those systems be overwhelmed and thus those with the least resources find themselves with less opportunity to get assistance to develop and advance? Would an unregulated border tend to diminish the number of poor in our society or perpetuate and expand the masses of people being ruled by those in power? Yeah, now pause. That's the first point. Go ahead. Um, a lot of people will argue that those people that aren't uh, citizens of the United States should have just as much right to come here as anybody else. Brilliant. I no, don't agree with that. No, 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 it's a good point. This, I'm an immigrant and I came legally. No, this is... I think it's wrong to just let people flow in. This is an excellent point. Let, let's, let's pick that point up. Second point before we get to your point. What would happen if such open borders allowed for an influx of immigrants into our country who do not value the principles of the Constitution, but instead believe in a supreme ruler, leader, to direct and govern the masses. You know, a supreme leader may be out of Rome. Now, if immigration was unregulated and migrants could enter freely without conditions, because there's this argument made, but we're, we're not nationalists, we're Christians. And Christians care for all the people of the world, not just for Americans. So we should have open borders to let all those people I've heard that many times. Okay, okay, let's take that. If immigration was unregulated and migrants could enter freely without conditions, what impact would it have on the countries they are leaving? Would the people who are leaving those countries be the persons most content, most happy, most well-connected, and doing the best in those countries? Or would it be the people who are most dissatisfied and most eager to bring change in those countries? And if we continue to siphon off a critical mass of discontented people, do we actually prevent the overthrow of abusive governments and thus perpetuate the exploiting of people in those countries? 
It's a sad reality. How did America become this great country in its origins? There were people discontented with the aristocratic rule of the royalty in England. The ruling elite exploiting with taxation and other things the masses. And there was a simple letter of resignation and peaceful moving forward with no conflict whatsoever. <laughs> or was there actual war and suffering and, and, and actual killing? This is not godly. This is not godly to do these things. But the Bible prophesied that this nation would rise up, if you believe the Revelation 13 prophecy, with lamb-like principles and become a nation-state that practiced in a new way that's never been done in the history of the world before, principles designed to allow the individual, the masses, to develop. And Why do you think this country is the envy of the world? People don't often articulate. They think it's because, well, money. No. It's because individuals have the opportunity to grow and develop their God-given capacities here. Whether it's religious, whether it's political, whether it's scholastic, whether it's artistic or whatever it might be, there's freedom and liberty here. That's the reason. And that is what a healthy government can create is opportunity for people to exercise their God-given abilities to grow and develop. And any practices that are designed to put in a ruling aristocracy to exploit the masses, and I see unregulated borders as part of a, pro a process designed to undermine our Constitution by getting people who don't value its principles and to keep a, a, a mass of um, people who are... Um, in poverty in this country so that the ruling elite can exploit that group. And so I think a regulated border actually changes that dynamic and allows for wages to rise and allows the support structures for the, um, for the least, um, uh, with the least connections to have more resources that are actually being provided by the government for their benefit, for them to grow. And then as the state gets stronger, guess what we're able to do if you're a Christian person? We're able to export resources. We can send aid and we can send all kinds of resources out. Just think of it this way. You can donate blood outside of your body to help somebody else. But you can only donate blood if you're not hemorrhaging yourself. If you're hemorrhaging yourself, you can't donate. And so a healthy body, you can have loving principles and we can be a great giving country to help as many as we can but only as we actually become the healthiest society, which is practicing principles that help each individual grow up into the full stature of God's design for them. Anyway. I think your inbox is probably already full. <laughs> um, so, so let me say this then. Let me say this. Can there, so after saying on that, can there be people who love God and want to uplift others to help them grow, to develop the fullness of their God-given abilities, who are on the exact opposite of, of a particular policy issue. They both want the same thing, but they, but they see it from different perspectives, and they might actually think that this is a better way to get it, then that's a better, but they still both want the same goal. Is that possible? Yes. Okay, so it's okay if you disagree with me, as long as you agree with the goal that we're all trying to help uplift people and restore the image of God in people. That's the goal. 
Does any government on earth, even the U.S., rightly represent the government of God? No. No. So the healthy approach, again, is to creating opportunity for people to exercise their abilities. Okay. Um, The lesson focuses on the truth in Tuesday's lesson that God rules, and the second paragraph states, in fact, the ultimate lesson God wants to teach the arrogant king is that, quote, heaven rules. Is that the ultimate lesson God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar was that heaven rules? I would say I agree with you. No, here's the lesson. Not that heaven rules, but how heaven rules. That's the lesson. Not that heaven rules, not that God rules, but how God rules. That's the lesson we need to learn. Not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. I found this quote very interesting um, out of Review and Herald, June 4, 1901. It says, the law of God is immutable. What does immutable mean? Unchangeable. What kind of law is immutable or unchangeable? One that you don't install, one you don't legislate, one that's not made up. In other words, design laws, parameters upon which life are built. God's, the law of God is immutable. Were it otherwise, no confidence could be placed in his government. God rules the world in omnipotence, and all that his love inspires, he will execute. That means bring about, not kill. He who rules the world in wisdom and love is a God who changes not. He does not abolish today that which he enforced yesterday. Through all the ages, Satan's work has been the same, to make of none effect the law of God. This is what we've been saying for so long. In other words, and how does he make it none effect? By getting you to believe the idea that God's laws are like human laws, just a system of rules made up that he then coercively enforces with punishment, rather than seeing his laws as the protocols of reality are built. That's how he does that. He has infatuated men and women, leading them to mistake darkness for light and error for truth. And you see that. How many Christians think God's law requires God to punish? That's error for truth. He began this work in heaven, and ever since he has been trying to deceive. He tells men and women that God has abrogated all law. What's abrogated mean? Done away with. Done away with. That's right. What kind of laws can you do away with? You can do away with them. We do, uh, many states have done away with the laws that say marijuana is an illegal substance. They've done away with that law. They've abrogated it. Speeding laws. Yes. So speeding laws. Yeah, we, we're, we, we, let's abrogate those speeding laws. Yeah. I mean, to her point, the speed, speed limits are changed all the time. That's right. They're changed all the time. And that's what Satan wants people to think God's laws are like, that he's able to do that. He can't do that because these are the laws upon which reality are built. Those who accept Satan's reasoning are terribly deceived. They accept a position which has no true foundation. God is unchangeable. He is satisfied with nothing short of perfect obedience. Pause. Does that scare you to hear that? Not now. It is true. Okay. She said not now. It used to. Because when you heard it under the human law model, it was perfect performance. But this is simply saying that God will be satisfied with nothing short of perfect obedience because obedience simply means harmony with the laws upon which life is built. It would be like a parent saying, my child just jumped underwater and is drowning. I will be satisfied with nothing less than perfect restoration to the law of respiration. In other words, if they're not breathing perfectly, I'm not happy. That's what it means, because that's how you live. That's all it means. Perfection is the only title which will gain admittance to heaven. Did you ever hear that one? 
perfection is the only title. It's like harmony with how God built life. Gain judgment in the heavens. The law is the only standard of character. There we go, character. And then get this one. This is where I really wanted you to go after you read all that. Here's where we go. The law of God and the law of Caesar have come into collision and will come into collision again. The question we have to answer is, shall we obey God or Caesar? Notice it didn't say the law of the Pope. It's not the law of the Pope. It's the law of Caesar. Pagan, Rome, human governments, imperialism, rules made up, coerced by threats of punishment. Do you see God running the universe like Caesar runs Rome? Because that's how the vast majority of the world sees God. That's the infection that God wants people to free other people from. I think I'm going to jump into Friday's lesson. And the second paragraph says, and we have about five minutes on Friday's lesson. Second paragraph says, um, God's purpose, is that the one I'm on? Yes, God's purpose that the greatest kingdom of the world should show forth his praise was now fulfilled. The public proclamation in which Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the mercy and goodness and authority of God was the last act of his life recorded in sacred history. Consider, again, the theme of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned, human race is in a terminal condition and will die if Messiah doesn't come. Jesus is promised in Genesis 3.15 to come and crush the serpent's head. The focus of the Old Testament is the battle between God and Satan, and God focuses on bringing Jesus to earth. That's why the focus goes from the human population at the flood to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob and his sons, because the focus is, and then not only Jacob and his sons, to Judah, because the ten tribes are gone after a while. And we're focusing, narrow, our focus keeps narrowing down. Because the focus keeps narrowing down because we're focusing in on the coming Messiah. And that's what the story of the Bible is trying to say. Now, Old Testament, Satan is working to obstruct the plan. He's trying to stop Jesus from coming. We talked about the flood earlier in the lesson before. We're not going to talk about that again. Look now as we get to the family of Abraham. Satan focuses on his, his strategy. Now, let's stop and destroy this branch of the human family. Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are all sterile. Think about that. These people were much closer to the Eden perfection than we were today. Sarah at age 90, get your mind, read the stories. Sarah at age 90 is still so beautiful. Pharaoh wants her for his wife at age 90. You show me a 90-year-old, even with plastic surgery. Even with plastic surgery. 90-year-olds today are not desirable. I hate to say it, folks. What I mean by that, physically, you look at her physically and go, yep, she's desirable. No, No, it it doesn't work. Even with plastic, it doesn't work. (laughs) But Sarah, something, she was still so vital, still so attractive. Pharaoh sees her and wants her for a wife at age 90. Uh, Abraham lived to be 175 years of age. There's nobody, even with the best nutraceuticals and vegan diet, that lives to be 175 years of age today. Okay. They had better physiology than we have, yet the fir- these three women, first two in the line of Christ, Rachel, line of Joseph, who was the end-up savior for the family shortly thereafter, but the first, these first three women are all sterile. Do you think this is just happens? What are the odds of that? Or is Satan working 
to try and stop God's plan by affecting their reproductive abilities. Do you think, well, he can't affect physical health? Look in the book of Job. Did he have the ability to affect physical health? Well, there's evidence that he... I'm not saying... No, we, don't have, we don't have the statement that he did it. But is it possible that there was a, was a bigger process going on here? Did God... We do have the statement that God miraculously intervened to heal all three of these women of a physical malady so they could have normal relations and produce children. Do you think that the conflict between Jacob and Esau was simply because... Excuse me, the conflict happened because Jacob and Esau had love of God in their heart. Is that why it happened? Or was Satan working to inflame in both of their hearts fear and selfishness? Watch out for number one. Jacob deceives his brother and deceives his father. And Satan stirs up anger and animosity. Was there an actual threat to Jacob's life? Why did he flee? Where did that threat go? Was Satan working to stir up this conflict to try to get Esau to do what Cain did to Abel? To shut down the path. Because there's a prophecy already, the younger will serve the older. Satan knows which brother he needs to kill. Do you see the prophecy? Do you see the, the, the battle being waged here? God creates an avenue. Go live with your uncle for 14 years. Come back. And when he comes back, Jacob is still afraid. Selfishness is still in his heart. He sends his family out ahead across the river to be a buffer between him and his brother. Kill my family first. <laughs> And he wrestles that night with God. Not against God. With God, he wrestles against his selfishness and fear. And he is victorious, and thus his name is changed from liar, deceiver Jacob, to one who with God overcomes. He overcame in his unity with God. Do you see that after Jacob has his sons, that Joseph is given a dream? Who gave Joseph those dreams? And when those dreams were given, how did the brothers respond with... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What a great God we serve. Let's worship our God together. Or did they become jealous? Where did the jealousy and envious? Who was flaming that up? Do you see Satan is working to try to stop the process? Now, this famine that came. Why do you think a famine came? Do you think, again, book of Job? Does he have the ability to affect weather patterns? Satan. I see it as, again, an attempt to try to destroy the avenue. God foreknew. God created a situation, not knowing responses to people. Has Joseph put in a place where he then can have a dream interpreted by Pharaoh, create a store of food to save the branch and keep open the avenue for Messiah? You see a real battle going forth behind the scenes going here. But then down in Egypt, the Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. The Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. Who inflames the jealousy, the fear, the insecurity in the Pharaohs to enslave the people? And what was the goal of the enslavement? Was it to destroy the image of God in these people and crush out the path and the avenue? But God brings Moses to deliver the people, sends up the entire theatrical system to teach the plan of salvation. But Satan works to infect Israel with pagan God concepts, the worship of the Baals and the asterisks, and uh, in intermarrying with the nations around, and eventually the ten tribes are assimilated and gone and evaporate off the planet. But we see God working to, and then, and then we have a story about Daniel. Judah gets taken captive because they're also in rebellion, and in the captivity, what happens to Judah, these last remnants, there's a repentance of a core group, they come back, they reestablish Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about last quarter, 
They begin bringing out the oracles of God again, teaching the scripture, uh, understanding their plan, their mission to a certain degree. And the avenue for Messiah was retained, and Jesus came. And then for the 33 years, Satan worked to try to kill baby Jesus or get Jesus to sin, and he can't. And then after that, we have the battle going on now where he's a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, trying to get us to accept a false remedy, a lie, to make our spirit temples where the Holy Spirit should dwell, a synagogue for Satan where we actually adhere to, admire, and practice Satan's methods instead. Yes, go ahead. I have a suggestion. Yes. You need to write a school book so this can be presented to our young people in their schools and stuff so they learn from the beginning the truth about God. Well. Why you should mention that. Why you should mention that. <laughs> we are in the process of writing some younger people materials, but just keep us in prayer. My brain is not a younger people brain. <laughs> <laughs> So keep us in prayer, and uh, we have uh, Stephanie, who is, uh, is is doing some amazing work along these lines, and so keep her in prayer also. All right, uh, Wendell. One point I think I need to make about this whole story about Nebuchadnezzar. Four times he came, God came and, and tried to rescue him, okay? Another thing is, a good share of the Old Testament is about the, ki- the uh, children of Israel, of the ten tribes, who were lost who had made a mistake, who were kept on going back, and God is continuing to draw them back. We have never gone out so far until we're dead that God will not come back and try to rescue us. Well said. Well, well said. We see that, I think, with Esther and Mordecai. These other examples. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that, yes, you are our creator, our savior, our redeemer, the lover of our souls, and you have poured out all of heaven for our good, and you Keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing until there's nothing left to pursue. And we ask now that your spirit will be poured out. Enlighten us, free us from the distortions, transform us to be like you, and make us effective in taking this message to the world. And we ask special blessing over all those who will be traveling next weekend, uh, coming to our Power of Love event, and that um, things will work out. There will be no problems or technical difficulties, and we will be able to get some really great material to share with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.